You're listening to The Lunar Body, a podcast for feminist menstruators who want to manage their health naturally and supernaturally through nutrition, herbalism, and intuitive expansion using science and the moon as your guides. Hello and welcome to The Lunar Body. I'm your host, Kristen Ciccolini, period priestess, nutritionist, and the founder of Good Witch Kitchen. Today we're talking about supporting your child's health and spiritual development. This episode was inspired by the emails I get from some of my listeners who are learning all about their menstrual cycle or connecting to their bodies and intuition at a time that they perceive as too late in life. I think it's never too late to get to know yourself on any level. And certainly some of you are beyond your menstrual year, so in that case, that ship has sailed in terms of getting to know your cycle, but menopause is also a time to get to know your body in a whole new way. It's like a whole other puberty. And I think we go through puberty three times in life. Actual puberty, then when you hit your 30s or 40s and stop caring about what everyone else thinks, you know, your sense of self is more solidified. A lot of people are becoming parents at that time. There are a lot of big changes happening, and then menopause would be the third. And these big shifts in our lives provide us with opportunities to check in, to see if we're in alignment with our values, and see how we're feeling on the inside and out. But this episode is really about the next generation, because every once in a while, someone will ask me about how they can pass on this information to their children. They grew up thinking their periods should be awful, accepting it as part of life, accepting symptoms rather than understanding them, being dismissed by doctors but not knowing any other course of action, lacking the knowledge about their own bodies to be a stronger advocate for themselves, also not understanding their relationship to themselves, not having the opportunity to connect to their intuition or even the knowledge that that opportunity was present. They grew up in a religious household that forbid or looked down upon other avenues of finding God, whatever your God or guide is. So lots of different situations. I want to talk about some things that you can do to make sure that the kids will be all right, to help them grow up with a better understanding and appreciation for their menstrual cycle, or perhaps understanding their siblings' cycle and needs, and to grow up in an environment where their spiritual self is nurtured and encouraged. This information, as always, is for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice, and it is your responsibility to speak to a qualified healthcare provider about your unique needs. The final decision when considering any diet or lifestyle change, whether it's discussed on the internet, in a podcast, or prescribed by your doctor, is always your own. The very first thing for children of any gender is to normalize body functions and human needs. Be honest, be open, you are their model. And you know, they're always listening and paying attention, even when you think they're not. So take a minute and think about how you perceive your body. And you can write down all the beliefs that you have about your body. There will likely be a good amount of negative perceptions on there. Hopefully not, but it's hard to avoid in our culture. Be completely honest with yourself and your feelings. A lot of these things were probably learned from your family environment growing up or from kids at school or the messages you received from the media. If you really want to dive deep with this exercise, you can try and trace back where you learned those things and consider whether they're rooted in truth or not. 
But the idea of this is really for you to be aware of the way you think about your body and to shift your thinking, because a shift in your thinking will lead to a shift in your language, your verbal language and your body language, because these are both things that kids notice. And you can't make a shift without first identifying what you want to change. That change starts within you. So those things that you wrote down, how can you flip them to be more positive? You can rewrite them as affirmations if you want. Uh, How do you want to feel in your body? How do you want to feel about yourself? Even if you don't believe the new positive statements you write down, it'll help you catch yourself when you start to think negatively. And it can be a difficult bridge to cross from self-hatred to self-love, which is why I appreciate the concept of body neutrality rather than focusing specifically on trying to get to body love. So even if you can move your thoughts to just a neutral place, it'll be helpful when you're trying to be an example for your children. Like, so what if I have belly rolls? It's not good or bad. It's neutral. It's my body. It gives me life. It gave my children life. So that change in thinking will reflect in the way you speak and the way you behave. This goes not just for your body image, but bodily functions, human needs. Allow your children to explore their bodies without shame. They're going to get curious and they're going to explore and they're going to ask questions. I saw a razor commercial the other day that had this jingle all about pubes. (laughs) I was just scrolling through my phone as the commercial was on, as one does, taking a break from the big screen to look at the little screen before I go back to the big screen. But then I started to hear some like Disney sounding voice saying, hi, I'm a pubic hair. And (laughs) lo and behold, I looked up and there was a cartoon curly pubic hair on my screen. It was great. But we didn't talk about that stuff as kids, not unless someone was trying to be gross and make a joke really, right? And Not that you have to walk around naked to normalize it, but not shaming it, not shaming bodily needs, natural ways that bodies look, not shaming bodily functions, especially the menstrual cycle. So how do you talk about periods to your kids? How soon should you teach them? I say them because I think children of all genders should learn about it, whether they have a cycle or not. And there's no age when you should have like a sit down one-on-one talk about periods. If you normalize it, then it should be something that they just learn about naturally. But you can bring it up in conversations where when they ask where babies come from. You can talk about it if they find your menstrual products and ask what they're for. You can bring it up if they have questions about how their bodies change as they get older. There will likely be lots of opportunities as they grow up. So rather than just having that one specific conversation, they'll get to know about it over time. And how you talk about it with them will depend on their age and what you feel they can understand. But keep in mind, they don't know anything different than what you teach them when they're young. So they don't necessarily know to be grossed out or if something is a big deal unless it's framed that way to them. So say your preschooler asks what your tampons are for. You can explain that people with vaginas bleed sometimes, and a tampon is to catch the blood and keep your underwear clean. It's called a period. That bleeding doesn't mean you hurt yourself. It's how you know you can have a baby one day. So something simple like that. If they have more questions, they have more questions. You can just keep it simple. If they freak out, you can remind them. This is something I read online. I thought it was a funny idea that their favorite pop star or whoever they love that is it's just like them that like Jojo Siwa or whoever gets their period to. I have no idea what kids are watching or who they like. I just 
Is JoJo Siwa still relevant to children? I don't know. But anyway, she gets her period too. So (laughs) you can tell them something like that if they are fearful about it. And do try to notice that when it comes to getting your period, if you're talking about it in a certain way, if you talk about how annoying and awful it is, or if you hide your pads and tampons from the boys in the house, if it's sort of an unwritten rule that periods are something to feel shame about or to hide or to dread, if you do find it awful and annoying, that's okay. Your feelings and your experiences are totally valid, but consider the language that you use to describe your experience. That you're not referring to it as the curse or complaining about how much it sucks or framing it as something that limits your abilities and experience of life. And that may unfortunately be your personal story, but there's also the potential for your child to experience a period with no issues and for them to understand that it can be a very positive thing and that it helps you learn about your body. It gives you clues into your health. It means that they may be able to have a baby someday if they want to and so on. So you can be honest about your experience, but also be sure to emphasize that not everyone is doomed to experience certain symptoms. And when you're sharing about periods, especially if they're old enough to get the full explanation, something you'll want to do before it happens, ideally, you can explain to your child that not everyone experiences the same thing, but when you personally have your period, you specifically need some time alone or you don't feel well or whatever your needs are. They're old enough to understand that, that you have specific needs at that time. And I would explain how the cycle works, what happens during your period, how long it lasts, what pads and tampons are, or whichever products you want to share with them. And those kinds of details will be helpful before getting into PMS symptoms that may or may not happen for them. Everyone's body is different. PMS symptoms might not appear at all for them, or they might be feeling tired, feeling cranky, getting upset about things more than usual, headaches, feeling bloated, skin breakouts, breast soreness, backaches. It's good for them to know and mentally prepare not just for those basics, but that they may have different needs at that time too, and it's okay to voice them and share what's going on for them. If there is a need for a full conversation, rather than learning about it over time, when it happens is up to you. The average age for a period to start is 12, but also consider your family history because a lot of it is hereditary. The first period usually happens about two years after breasts begin to grow and one year after pubic hair begins to grow. So if that pube commercial really caught your kid's eye, You might want to start planning the conversation if you haven't already. (laughs) Also, it's really important to use the correct words for body parts. I know we like to just refer to everything down there as the vag, but it's important for your child to know the difference between their vulva and their vagina. And I'll give a little primer if you don't know these things either. It's okay if you don't. We aren't really taught much about this, so I don't blame you if you don't know. Go park yourself in front of a mirror and let's follow along. (laughs) The vulva and the vagina are basically the outer parts and the inner parts. The vulva refers to all the external genitalia. This includes the mons pubis, so the area above it all with the pubic hair. And then we have the labia or the vaginal lips. We have the labia majora, which is the outer lips, and the labia minora in the inner side, the inner lips. Then there is the clitoris and its hood in the center. So when people say flick the bean, that's the bean. And the vulva also includes the openings of both the vagina and the urethra. The urethra is the tinier hole where you urinate from. 
And the vulva also includes the perineum, which is the area between the vaginal opening and your anus. The vagina is actually the birth canal, so it's basically a muscular tube that connects the vulva and the uterus. So imagine you're on the magic school bus. I'm dating myself here. Miss Frizzle is driving on into the vaginal opening. You'll go through the vaginal canal, that is the vagina, and then you come to the cervix, which is the entrance to your uterus. We could actually have a whole episode that's an anatomy lesson. If you want, I can go through all the parts of the reproductive system. Let me know if you want me to do that. But the baby grows in the uterus, and when it's time to give birth, the cervix opens up. And that's what you hear about someone being so many centimeters dilated when they're giving birth. They're talking about the cervix and how many centimeters it's opening up for the baby to exit the womb and move through the birth canal or the vagina. So the vagina is technically this tube, but it's not like an empty hole. I'm sure you have felt around there at some point in your life. You're not using your finger as a weather vane. You feel the vaginal walls. That's because this tube is really kind of flat. And it expands to accommodate whatever's inside of it, whether it's a menstrual product, a penis, a baby, it's very elastic. So long story short here, it's important to use the correct words, not only so kids are educated about their bodies, but especially so that young kids can confidently and clearly communicate about their bodies, whether to a parent in a medical setting, or I hate to say it, if they are trying to communicate about being touched in an inappropriate way. Using avoidance words or silly words also subtly implies that the real word is something you don't say or that you should be ashamed of. And I am no parenting expert. I do think it's probably okay to use those silly words sometimes, but they should also know the real words and they should be able to identify those parts of their bodies. And make sure also that the men and non-menstruating family members in your life are included on these conversations if possible and if it makes sense. It doesn't need to be a secret thing that your kid can only talk to mom about or have them be afraid to call dad and tell them to bring pads to their soccer practice or whatever. Plus, it's good for siblings who don't menstruate to understand what the other is going through so they can understand their different needs and hopefully support each other when it's needed. If you feel very uncomfortable with all of this, I get it. Depending on your upbringing, it can feel completely out of your comfort zone to be saying these things out loud, let alone even acknowledging their existence. Feel free to point them to my podcast. I have episodes on how the cycle works and on all the different menstrual products out there that can be good primers. Also, there are plenty of online resources and books out there now specifically for childhood education on these topics. Another way to encourage this personal development in terms of menstrual health is with cycle tracking. I also have episodes on this, and there are tons of resources out there. You don't have to go all in and have them start tracking their basal body temperature, but just having the basics down, like tracking their mood and energy from day to day, getting them into that habit is good. So when they first get their period, and in the first few years, it is normal for things to be irregular. It's normal for their cycle length to be irregular and for their symptoms to be all over the place. The body is getting used to the new hormones and figuring things out. But tracking it will show them what's going on for them. And as things regulate, you can help them keep the basics in place. Food, sleep, stress, exercise, water, all of that to help them have a happier overall experience. Writing down how things are can help them take care of themselves in a more compassionate and effective way, 
and putting a name to their moods and experiences helps them to be more self-aware and you can help them find ways to care for themselves for all the different things that they're experiencing. You can teach them self-soothing techniques like breath work or meditation or tapping. You can do yoga together. So that's something that can be taught from a young age. I like to do yoga with my three-year-old nephew. We watch these colorful cosmic yoga videos on YouTube, and that's helpful for getting him to connect with his body in a way that's natural and fun. Plus, over time, they get a better understanding of their personal rhythms, how long their period lasts, if and when PMS symptoms come up, what their flow tends to look like, what spotting looks like, how long it lasts for them if they have it, how their mood and energy changes from one phase to another. It'll help them learn as well about discharge and that it's normal and not something to be afraid of or feel shame for. Have them listen to the episode titled What's in My Underwear for an explainer on all of that. This is all very helpful information to have, as you know, as I hope you know, since you started listening to my show. And this is just all really valuable information that stays with you for life. It's a practice that can stay with you for many, many years. And as they get older, as they become sexually active, you can teach them more about tracking cervical fluid and temperature along with their birth control options. If you've been educated in the fertility awareness method, that is an amazing gift to give to your child. It's such valuable information to have, and it's a practice that really gets you in tune with your body and your needs and gets you living in sync with your cycle instead of resisting it. Moving on to the more spiritual side of your child's growth and development, cycle tracking can be part of that still. You can have conversations about feelings. You can go look at the moon together, connect their cycle to the moon, give them some context for each of the phases of their cycles by what's going on in the sky. But again, it all starts with you. If cycle tracking isn't something you've done previously, you can learn about it together. Same with intuitive practices. You may want to work on your own before or at the same time as you help your child develop their connection to their inner voice. And working on these things for yourself invites them to do the same because they're always paying attention. And they are already natural born intuitive eaters. You notice this when they're very small. They tell you when they're hungry and when they want to eat. You know, when they're babies, they stop when they don't want anymore. Even if there are three tiny little bites left, they don't care. They're done when they're done. We can actually learn a lot from them and watch them listen to their natural signals, something we often lose along the way as we become more accustomed to all this outside influence. Just consider how we think about when it's okay to eat breakfast or lunch or dinner. Maybe it's 1030 in the morning and you already want the sandwich you brought to work for lunch, but you avoid it because it's too early for lunch. Time is a construct. Eat the sandwich. (laughs) We settle into these rules that we start to learn at school. You know, no food in class, only eat at lunchtime in the cafeteria, and so on. Of course, rules are in place to keep some sort of order, but you can see how it also disconnects us from ourselves. So it's important to encourage intuition at home or in other ways. You can also ask your child to talk about their feelings. If they say they're happy or sad, ask them more about what it means to them, where they feel it in their body. They might not have a wide-ranging vocabulary for it just yet, but it gets them in the practice of acknowledging feelings and having a sense of what feels right and wrong and good and bad, and to trust their feelings and trust their decision-making skills too. Ask them about their day. Ask them about the people in their life. Ask them about their interests. Let them speak freely and allow them to use their imagination with your questions too. This can create 
a safe, unstructured space for them to explore their imagination and their creativity and their intuitive feelings. And as a person who loves structure, I do think it's important to go without sometimes. Maybe you have a container of time to provide some structure, but within that container, there's freedom of expression or freedom to just think and be. Rather than filling all the time with stimulating TV shows and sing-along music or video games or whatever fills up that kid's attention, provide an activity that helps them focus on the present. Connecting to nature together is a nice way to practice that and to practice developing intuition. It helps you slow down and if you want to literally smell the roses. You can take a walk, look at all the flowers together, touch the leaves and the petals, smell them, Notice the bees and the other insects that might be around. This is just a way to be in the present and notice small details that you might otherwise ignore. This is also nice for highly sensitive people who could use a calming exercise. Nature is very soothing for the nervous system. And kids are often under a lot of stress and pressure these days. So this is a nice way to calm and soothe. You can also ask your kid what message they think the flowers or the bees have for you or what feelings they're getting. That'll be a fun exercise, I'm sure. If it sounds silly, who cares? It's not that serious. Live a little. You can make it fun. Maybe you can go to a crystal shop together and have them explore the ones they like, see the ones that they're drawn to, show them what each of them mean and let them pick out ones that mean something to them. It's interesting to see what they're naturally drawn to and you can ask them questions about why too. Get them talking about their intuition. I used to love collecting crystals when I was a kid. Of course, when I was a kid, we did not call them crystals. They were just like rocks and minerals. I had this junior geologist kit. I think I wish I kept all of that, but kids love that stuff. So that is something that could be fun with them. In terms of a sensory exercise, you can do the same at dinner time, being present with your meal together. Go through all the senses and make it a fun little activity. What do they smell? What do they taste? What's the texture like? Is the food making any type of noise, like a crunch or a sizzle? Is it squishy? Is it mushy? What's the temperature of the food? Is it warm or cold, hard or soft? How does it feel in your mouth? How does it feel in your stomach? Make it fun and just focused on the enjoyment of food rather than the healthfulness or nutrient content. If your kid doesn't like it, they don't like it. Ellen Satter, who's a dietitian that teaches families how to have healthy relationships with food, says that as a parent, it's your job to decide what you eat and when, and it's your kid's job to decide if they eat, what they eat, and how much they eat. Of course, parenting in this area is a lot more complex than that, but this type of activity can make the experience more joyful and help them trust in themselves more. If they don't eat, it'll balance out. They'll eat more at another meal. Being present like this slows down the experience, again, has you noticing details you might otherwise ignore, which can reflect in other areas of life and gets you in tune with what you're experiencing and feeling. It also helps with paying attention to hunger and fullness cues so kids can learn the right amount of food for their bodies. And that creates a more relaxed and health supportive relationship with food than if you were to focus on nutrients alone. If you listen to my episode on eating as a spiritual practice, you'll remember that intuitive practices don't have to be like performing spells or reading tarot or anything witchy. It can be practical too. But what if you do want them to be more witchy? If that's your thing, you can bring your kids in on your rituals if you want. Talk about what intentions are. 
That's really the goal behind using your intuition is to connect this inner knowledge to make intentional, informed decisions that are right for you. You can build an altar together, explain what it is, decide on an intention together. Let them help you decide what should be there, what your rituals will be in relation to the altar. Will you light a candle on it every day? Will you refresh the altar items once a week? Decide on your practice together. Going back to the nature aspect, you can talk about what certain plants are good for. Energy-wise, show them the magical plants in your yard, like the mugwort growing like crazy or the rosemary that protects your home. This can feel very whimsical and magical when you're a kid, and this can also help them develop not just a relationship with the plants, but respect and appreciation for their environment and an understanding of how we're all connected to nature. If you want to read tarot together, ask them their interpretations of the cards. This is something you can learn together too. All of these things you can learn together if you're new to this. They don't have to know anything. Just ask them what they see, how it makes them feel, same way you would learn. You can also, of course, explain what the different symbols and suits mean if they're old enough to register all that, but it'll be interesting to hear what comes to mind without any coaching involved, and it you know, gets them accustomed to listening to themselves. I consider myself an eclectic witch and don't really subscribe to any specific religion or practice devotion to any specific deity. I take what resonates with me and I leave the rest, and that may or may not work for you and your family. One thing I would just try to keep in mind is that if you do follow a specific religion, you can't force your beliefs on anyone. You can introduce your child to the things that you believe without forcing them to believe too. Of course, it would be nice if they could join in with you on these things, but again, you can't force it. You can lead by example. You can invite them to share experiences with you, and they might come to it when they're ready, or they might not. Regardless, I do think that allowing space to nurture their intuition by encouraging practices and activities that help them be in tune with their senses, their feelings, and the present moment, it's going to help them in all areas of life. Like I said, intuition doesn't specifically have to be in a spiritual context. It's also a very practical thing to have too. If you have any recommendations for how you've nurtured your child's growth in these areas or how you've been nurtured, or anything else helpful you'd like to share, please do, because I do get questions about this semi-often, so I would love to share your advice as well. And you can send that to thelunarbody at gmail.com, and I can share it in a future episode. Parenting is hard. I know that, and I know a lot of these things might sound idealistic, but just know you are doing your best, and your best is so appreciated. There is no manual. Everyone's story, everyone's family is different. But I hope this helps you create special memories and a special connection with your child as they grow up and develop their spiritual self and appreciation for their body. If you learned a lot from this episode, if you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a positive rating in Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you being here and I will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Lunar Body. This one-woman production is listener-supported, and if you'd like to support the show, you can check out the podcast perks in the show notes, visit my virtual tip jar at goodwitchkitchen.net slash tip, or you can subscribe and leave a rating or review in iTunes so other lovely lunar feminists like you find my show. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at thelunarbody at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at goodwitchkitchen. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time. Thank you.